0: Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me, I'm Howard Parker. How does a Rhode Island guitar rocker step into the shoes of a larger-than-life John Duffy after the Duff's departure from the country gentleman? And what happens when Duffy shows up at one of his gents' gigs? Hear about this and stories about Duffy, Monroe, Adcock, Carl Jackson, and a host of others as Katie Daly talks with the incredible Jimmy, Couture.
1: Jimmy, you tell some of uh, my favorite bluegrass stories, and that's why I wanted to <laughs> talk with you. Uh, the one I remember uh, first is the story about your audition with the country gentleman. And uh, that was probably what year? About 1969? It was
2: 1969, exactly. Uh, right. That, that much I can remember. It was over 50 years ago, but uh, you know, my my long-term memory is a lot better than my short-term these days. So, uh, I,
1: all right. So you were up in Rhode Island, where your native Rhode Island, and and you were playing with the band, I believe, Jimmy G and the Jaguars.
2: Yeah, I'm kind of a late uh, comer to bluegrass. I wasn't uh, brought up or in a house that was uh, filled with bluegrass music. Yes, my dad uh, liked uh, the uh, pops or the standard. Singers of the day, you know, uh, like uh, Johnny Mathis, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, whoever, you know, uh, he, he preferred that kind of music. And my mom liked uh, what was then, cl- or what you would call now, classic country music. She liked Hank Williams and uh, uh, Eddie Arnold and all, all the country singers of the day. So I got to hear at least that much, but... I do not recall hearing bluegrass music in our house or or a banjo, actually, until um, what they refer to as the folk era or the folk boom mm-hmm. hit, you know, around the early 60s. Because I, um, like you uh, had mentioned a while ago, I did have a band back in Rhode Island and it was called Jimmy G and the Jaguars, and uh, I was play an electric guitar. And that's all I knew about. And that's all, really all I cared about back then. Just, you know, uh, Chuck Berry and the Beatles and uh, Lonnie Mack and uh, all the great guitar players of the day. That's who I wanted to be like. Uh, I didn't have a mandolin or a banjo in my hands until I was probably 15, 16 years old. Right. uh, And
1: when you got the mandolin, somebody suggested that you should be a tenor. Is that correct?
2: No, it was the other way around, actually. Oh, Uh, I I was a tenor singer. And that's the part that I sung in uh, the Jimmy G and the Jaguars band. Um, So, you know, my voice was always in that range. Um, I went to a jam session, uh, a bluegrass jam session at a friend's house, that, and they were kind of transplants from uh, rural West Virginia into Rhode Island. So they brought the, the music with them, and and they would invite players over to their house. And uh, a friend of mine who was getting interested in banjo uh, stopped by and picked me up and said, I want you to go to this jam session, and I think you'll like it. And I said, sure, why not? And uh, he was playing banjo uh, Beginning banjo, and it just so happened that there was a mandolin uh, sitting on a couch there in this person's living room, and uh, one of the players said, "Well, why don't you you know? You're a guitar player. Well, you ought to be able to figure that out. You know, it's it's only got four. You know, it's tuned like a violin." And I said. Okay, what is it? It's it's a mandolin. <laughs> so, I picked it up and uh, you know, luckily it was in tune and I and uh I started strumming on it and they said, "No, no, 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 you don't strum it like a guitar, you play chop." And I said, "What is a chop?" So, the person uh, taught me you, you know, he said you play on the on the offbeat, the uh, the two as as it is as it is known. And that was my first exposure to a mandolin. And they said, you know, you, you sing tenor, so that's the instrument you should be playing in a bluegrass band, not not the banjo. Like you're, you know, it, it appears you have an interest in playing banjo, but you should be playing mandolin. And I said, oh, really? <laughs> so I borrowed that mandolin and uh, started listening to bluegrass and. The rest is history, as they say. You know, I started... Well, as I
1: understand, you became quite an expert on the uh, country gentleman's
2: music. Well, um, it was popular in the first band that I got hooked up with. Uh, All rank amateurs, you know, just um, one step below living room uh, quality. Uh, Everybody learning their own instrument at the same time, and listening to records uh i uh, the country gentlemen were different than any other the of the bands that we were listening to at the time and we just kind of gravitated towards that and said hmm, I, I like that so uh we learned a lot of uh country Gentlemen material right from the very beginning and right uh, when i finally did get the audition um I, I came well prepared and so Well, I, how did I,
1: how did the audition come about because John Duffy decided that he was going to uh leave the country gentleman and so there there definitely was an opening how did you hear about that up in Rhode Island and then how did they hear about you
2: well um uh, it, it's um contrary to popular popular belief I wasn't the first one to get the call um My friend and uh, uh, musical peer, I guess you could say, uh, Herschel Sizemore, was the first one that they contacted, uh, and he was living around the Roanoke area. He came up to audition for the band, stayed a couple of weeks and decided uh, that he didn't really want to relocate to the D.C. area. And if I'm correct, I believe he was working for the U.S. Postal Service, um, had a very secure job and didn't want to give that up to, uh, you know, the chances of whatever the the music business, no matter who you are, is risky at best. So um, he decided he would go back to Roanoke, and at the time, uh, one of the reasons that John Duffy decided to leave the country gentleman was because Mike Seeger um, was acting on their behalf to book a tour of Japan, and uh, John didn't particularly want to fly back then. And he, right. Well,
1: he was famous he, for not wanting to fly. Well, back then,
2: yeah, <laughs> and, and until the uh, seldom seen came into uh, uh, being you know then he was kind of forced to it and he said Oh, no, this isn't so bad you know <laughs> you know i went all those years thinking that uh, i i I hated flying and it's not so bad but <laughs> not this so is, bad you know way way down the line at the, at the time the the country gentleman was scrambling then after herschel went back to roanoke and, and he said we need a mandolin player like right now that knows our stuff and can jump in and can get a passport and go with us to Japan. So uh, the circumstances were that they were at the time they were recording for rebel records, which was owned then by Dick Freeland a little confusion there because he later sold it to Dave Freeman. Uh, But uh, at the time, Dick Freeland owned and operated rebel records and he had a distributor up in New England by the name of Earl Pike, who was the brother of Fred Pike, who became my bluegrass mentor, uh, an outstanding musician who lived in nearby Connecticut and uh, um, eventually owned a music store over there where I would go as often as possible to uh, just hang around him and learn licks because he he was just that good. But anyway, Earl knew that I I was playing mandolin. And uh, he got into a conversation at some point, or or Dick had called him and said, man, we need a mandolin player like right now down here for, for the Country Gentleman. And Earl says, well, I know this guy that's working with my brother up here, and he's pretty good, and he knows a lot of Country Gentleman material, so I will let him know. And through the grapevine, the word had gotten to me that the country gentlemen were in the market at least for a mandolin player. And I said, Hmm, you know, i you know, I didn't think by any means that I was going to be getting a call or anything like that. I just knew that the word was out that they were looking for a mandolin player. And one night the phone rings and it's, hi, this is Dick Freeland from rebel records. And, uh, Oh, well, uh, and he went through the whole spiel, you know, we, we need a mandolin player. That sings tenor, that, that knows a lot of country gentleman material and uh, can come down here as soon as possible to audition. And I was going to school at the time, uh, a trade school, um, studying to be a draftsman, which a lot of people probably don't even know what that is or was. Back back then, it was you know mechanical drawing, which. Uh, kind of went away when the computers came in and, and they called it CAD computer aided huh. <laughs> assisted drawing. So, uh, uh, that's what I was doing at the time. And, uh he said, how old were you? Um, uh, let's see, 69. So I was 22 at the time. All right. Yeah. Just a young still, man, just still a, a young whippersnapper. snapper, Yeah. But uh you know I was So really how long did it
1: take point. you how long did it take you to say I'm in my car I'm on my way
2: Well I didn't get in my car right away uh actually uh I took a plane out of Providence uh to DC uh with a friend of mine who was uh kind of a go between he was actually this friend was actually the person who let me know that the country gentlemen were uh, in the market for uh, a mandolin player. And he, and he said, look, th- this is like the chance of a lifetime. You know, I know you're in school. I know that, uh, you know, you want to finish probably. But if you even remotely thinking about uh, joining or being part of a bluegrass band, you couldn't do any better. You know, you're, you're like starting right near at or near the top. And, and that was said, true. Well, it was, yeah. And, and and I said, well, I'm going to give it a shot. So he and I jumped on a plane uh, like two days later, came down to D.C., and Dick Freeland and uh, Ed Ferris, who was playing bass with the uh, gentleman at that time, were, greeted me at uh, National Airport. And I jumped in the car and immediately went directly down to Charlie Waller's bus, which was parked. Uh, he was, he had converted it to like an RV early RV at the time. And he had it parked in somebody's yard down in Alexandria. And that's right. where we were to meet up. Ed uh, already had his base down there. And, uh, uh, Eddie Adcock was there with Charlie waiting on me to arrive. So came in, uh, to the bus and, uh, Shook hands. I had never met the, any of these people before, you know. And they said, "Okay, got your mandolin? Get it out and let's uh, go over a few tunes." And uh, you know, b- into about the third tune, uh, Eddie was kind of shaking his head. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you have the voice. You, you mandolin ability is, you know, unquestionable. So, uh, you know, I, I think you may be a good candidate for the job. <clears throat> Charlie, on the other hand, was kind of indifferent. You know, he, he was uh, l- less impressed, I guess, you could say. And uh, a- after we had uh, gotten into one of their uh, signature tunes, uh, bringing Mary home, he said, well, it's evident that you know a lot of our material. And uh, he says, but one thing, he says, that you're going to have to work on like right away is that you can't sing, I looked all around the car, but Mary wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and, uh, I I thought, oh my gosh, you know, it's like, uh, but... (laughs) Charlie, he picked right up on that and Eddie said, you know, kind of patted Charlie, don't worry, Charlie, you know, we'll, we'll get through that stuff. The guy's got the voice and, and he can play and, you know, we can, we'll work on the accent and, you know, Eddie was like in my corner all the way. And Charlie said, okay, let's, and he said, you know, you're going to have to stick around because we got dates coming up like really, really soon. You know, mm-hmm. and you're gonna have to, like, uh, get a passport right away. So they marched me down to D.C. Uh, and expedited the thing. I went to the Japanese embassy and, you know, uh, showed my all my IDs and stuff, and and soon I had a passport. Ironically, or uh, the bad thing that happened, I guess, is that the tour was canceled. Because, oh. in fact, John Duffy wasn't going to be part of it. And I don't know why that, you know, they didn't know this ahead of time. But, you know, they were still thinking the trip is still on. We we get to, to take our new mandolin player over there and everything. And then uh, <clears throat> suddenly I got a phone call, and you know, like two weeks into the job, Oh, by the way, the Japanese thing isn't happening.
1: But they kept you for as, as a member of the gentleman, correct?
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, I I had already committed. I I you know, had gone back to Rhode Island to get my car and my clothes and everything else that I could uh, stuff into my car and came back to DC and and uh stuck around. You know, they they had gigs still to play. To, to, you know, they couldn't cancel all of their the Shamrock uh, gig was like two nights a week, I think back then, like uh Monday and Tuesday, or something like that, and that was a every week thing so and then they had other gigs uh beyond that. I can remember one of the first ones was playing uh the Bluegrass Lounge, I believe, down in Richmond, Virginia, and a place called Whitey Johnson's up in Baltimore um Right off the bat, you know, just uh, jumping into the fire, as, right. as as it is known. And uh, I had to learn... But you knew to...
1: most of their material, and that wasn't a problem for you?
2: Not most of the material. Uh, I had to do some quick study stuff, um, because, um, you know, we... Uh, the, Fred Pike and Bill Rawlings and the Twin River Boys, which was the only other bluegrass band that I had ever played with up in Rhode Island. Uh, yes, we did a lot of Country gentlemen material, but not exclusively. So, you know, we were still doing Red Allen stuff and Bill Monroe stuff and, you know, uh, Osborne Brothers tunes, you know, a mixture of stuff but not exclusively country gentlemen things. I, I knew enough to get through maybe a set uh, when I first came down and they said, well, you're going to have to do some quick study. And here's, here's, here's our records and study them right away. And, uh, you know, show up because uh, we don't have too much time for rehearsal and, mm-hmm. you know, before the shamrock gigs, we would, practice tunes in the kitchen and come out through the bar area on directly onto the stage. And I think back then we were playing exclusively through one microphone. And uh, so that was it. You know, you you get on stage and here's the new guy. And uh, at the time, uh, I hadn't met John Duffy, but probably two or three weeks into the gigs that were going on, he showed up one night and you could hear the crowd whisper, you know, Oh my Duffy, Duffy's in the crowd tonight. And I said, and that's what I, Oh, yeah. That that was my response too. Oh my, <laughs> probably not in exactly those words, but
1: I can imagine, but,
2: but it's like,
1: Oh, and so you're back in the kitchen and word comes back there. that yeah, Duffy's
2: in the audience. Yeah. Duffy's in the audience tonight. And, and, uh, oh so and sure enough you know i'm standing on stage and i look out and i can see john and his wife nancy sitting in the table uh, just grinning you know john was you know g- g- gave me a little wave and uh, i said oh great you know and uh, i and eddie looked over to me and said just do your stuff you know just don't worry about it and, uh, got through the first set, you know, I could, I could look down and actually see my pants legs shaking. You know, I was, I, I was more than nervous. I, and it's like, I'm going to get through this one way or another. <laughs> and it was probably one way or the other, but uh, I got through it. And uh, immediately, you know, I, I got off stage and, and looked over at John and he gave me, kind of the wave you know like come over and, and you know i'd like to meet you and introduce ourselves whatever and and so i nervously walked over and sat down at the table with uh, him and nancy and he said i like what i hear you you know you uh you obviously have the range the, the vocal range and he says
1: i like your man lin
2: a lot He says, wow uh, and that was what I really wanted to hear, you know, it's like, oh my golly, you know, I'm, I'm playing in front of John Duffy, one of my heroes. But he said, no, he, he says, I, I think you're going to be a good fit for the, for the group. He says, however, he says, if I can give you one bit of advice, um, uh, you need to learn how to sell it. And that didn't hit home to me because you know i i had heard a lot of country gentleman records at the time and knew of his playing ability and and, and vocal ability for sure but i had not witnessed uh, a stage performance so i didn't know exactly what he meant by you got to sell it and uh he explained it to me he, he says you know he the country gentlemen have always been known to be a show group. So, you know, you, you can't stand there and be, it's probably the first time I heard anybody use the, the term technician. He says, you are a great technician on the mandolin. He says, it's obvious. You, you really know what you're doing, but you, you haven't learned how to sell it yet. And you should work on that. And, I did for 50 years. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so in
1: know, other I, words, he was saying, relax, have some fun, uh, yeah, because that was what they did on stage.
2: Yeah, yeah. He says you, it's almost like saying you are taking this much too seriously, and then thinking to myself, "Well, I just got here, and I'm trying to fill your shoes. You know, <laughs> how do you think I feel? <laughs> you know, I'm scared to death." <laughs> well, you know,
1: by John Duffy's standards, those were rave reviews. You got your mandolin playing was very good, and. And your, and your vocal range was good, so uh,
2: oh, he was giving me. you was, the thumbs up. I was flying on cloud, cloud nine, as they say, after hearing that, and the second set went much easier, you know, and he, he was like and "Give me the thumbs up. And as the night progressed, I'm sure they, they didn't stay for the entire night or, uh, because the gig went from nine to two and, wow. uh, you know, he was probably gone by, uh, 1030 or 11 or something like that, but he had seen, uh, all he needed to see, uh, as, as far as, you know, if, if you looked at it critique wise anyway, but, uh, you know, and he, he knew that I was still somewhat intimidated by him being there. And, you know, I looked down and yeah, they, they had, uh. Gone home, I guess. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, then then it was like, oh, you know, <laughs> you could hear the breath come out of me. Now I can really relax, and uh, but uh, you know, I, it, it wasn't like I could put into practice his words of wisdom immediately, and and you know, show off and and uh, try to emulate his uh mandolin antics or, or whatever on stage uh you know that's uh, i i don't think i ever really uh, approached that level uh john duffy stood out he he was unique not only as a player and a singer but as a showman as well he uh he still to this day is my hero you know and uh uh, uh, mine too jimmy mine too yeah yeah and, and and to a lot of people you know uh it's it's so tragic too young he he, he passed away much much too young he had a lot more left uh, in him to say and do and um, gosh what a loss you know it,
1: there's it, another story I remember uh that you tell and of course it it uh involved Duffy and Bill Monroe playing baseball together.
2: Oh yeah. Uh Bluegrass Canada. Um you know everybody was getting into the festival business uh, back then and uh by then John of course had, had uh, helped form the Seldom scene and they were on the bill as well as I was with Country Store um, back oh, then. Oh, right. Uh, I believe, uh-huh. uh, playing Bluegrass Canada, and they had uh, the entertainers area kind of fenced off because uh, it gets kind of wild up there, you know, and, and did back then. They, they wanted uh, to, you know, offer the um uh, entertainers a bit of privacy so that you know we could practice and and do our thing before going on stage without having to deal with uh the fans uh, anyway that was that was their way of doing it up, up up there you know totally different than here in the states let's say and let me use like watermelon park for example that was one of the first festivals that i played and they didn't have any fences around there. You know, they, you, uh, walked around in the crowd with the crowd and, uh, no problem, never had a problem, but, uh, you know, just so there wouldn't be any problems. The promoter up in Canada decided that, okay, I'm going to uh, fence off the uh, entertainers area. And I'm out there one afternoon. It was a, a bright, sunny afternoon. And, uh, Bill Monroe and the bluegrass boys were were there their bus was parked there and the uh i don't remember what the scene was traveling in at the time i i they i don't believe they ever had a, a banned vehicle they no they, i think they all arrived
1: got there under their own
2: steam each yeah, one of them that that is correct they they did and so uh John just happened to have his baseball glove with him and uh knew that bill you know back in the old days anyway the the bluegrass boys were known to play bass they they played bluegrass music and baseball when they arrived in town uh, that, that that's another story completely but bill was a pretty good uh, baseball player in his day and even as an older gentleman he could still I'm a baseball pretty good. And, and John says, do you want to throw a few? And Bill, Bill says, well, let me get my glove. <laughs> and walked into his, walked into the bus and came out with a baseball mitt. And, and sure enough, he and John Duffy stood there for a good 15 minutes. Uh, you know, they, they had a mutual respect, but a mutual, a mutual competition between them. They were both very competitive guys. And, uh, Duffy was pretty good athlete in a lot of ways. You know, he, he, he played softball and, uh, he, he was a, a duck pin bowler. I, I believe back then, and he was good and, uh, very athletic, but, and so was Monroe, I guess. So anyway, I'm sitting there watching it and it, a, a bit of a crowd started gathering around and, I thought to myself, and here I am without a camera, you know, (laughs) I said, this, this is history being made, Bill Monroe and John Duffy throwing baseball. And, and as time progressed, you know, they, again, they only did it for a few minutes, but uh, you know, they they started out tossing the ball and then pretty soon they were throwing some heat and uh, you know, you could hear the slap of the glove. And, and if it was, John throwing to Bill, whatever Bill picked up the ball and hummed it back at him. And it was slap, you know, and John picked up the ball and hummed it back at Bill. And it was, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> like, well,
1: probably both of them trying not to grimace when they caught the ball. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I said, this is, this is getting downright serious here. And pretty soon, uh, one of them announced, Oh, you know, I, we got to go on. And, and I forget which group it was. But uh, anyway, they, they, they put it back and kind of, you know, nodded to each other. Let's do this again sometime. <laughs> it wow. Was, it was just historical and hysterical at the same time. <laughs> Two giants. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Jimmy, you played with a lot of great bands, and uh, let's see, Country Store was a good band. Uh,
2: yeah, th- I, we, I, that uh, was my first experience really at running a band, you know, uh, and that was kind of out of necessity. I, I had gone from the Country Gentleman. To uh, the second generation, which was a startup band with Eddie Adcock and Bob White and Wendy Thatcher at the time, and after about a year of uh, of that, uh, let me say it, it, musically it, it wasn't going in the direction that I hoped it would from the beginning. Uh, it was you know losing its kind of bluegrass feel. So to speak, and we had relocated to Columbus, Ohio, mostly because uh, a, a good friend of ours and uh, the late Sid Campbell, uh, was a, who was a great rhythm guitar player and, and singer, he lived there and said, uh, You know, the, we, we have a great recording studio here in, uh, in Columbus, and the people that run it. You know, you, you could have full access to this studio, you know, to do all your, your recording and stuff and rehearsal. And and uh, and the cost of living up here is much better than D.C. And Eddie says, why not? You know, <laughs> and I said, really? Yeah. You want to relocate to Columbus, Ohio? And he says, sure. And so we did. And next thing you know, I'm living in Columbus, Ohio, and, traveling around with the second generation and uh playing a lot of gigs that booked for like a week at a time you know like uh monday through saturday have sunday off go back again and it was quite rigorous the and as a startup band didn't, didn't pay all of that well you know we 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 were, yes, the cost of living in, in Columbus was a little better than, uh, D.C. or a little easier, but, uh, still had to make a living, and it was, uh, it was a tough way to go, and after about a year of it, I had just had it. I said, you know, I can't do this anymore, and, it, and musically, it's not going in the direction I want it to go, and, and we had one, uh, LP out at the time, uh, introducing the second generation, uh, which we were selling on the road, but we didn't have prospects for a follow-up to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I said, it's time for me to do something else. So I announced to Eddie, I said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, uh, I'm going to try my hand at doing my own band. And he says, well, good luck and I recruited Keith Whitley, who was uh, then playing with Ralph Stanley and living in Sandy Hook, Kentucky, which was a couple hour drive from from, uh, Columbus. And I recruited Carl Jackson, great banjo player. He was working with, at the time, he had already worked with Jim and Jesse, but he was working uh, at the time with the Sullivan family, a gospel group out of Mississippi. And I recruited my old buddy, Bill Rawlings, um, playing bass, who was free to move around. And he said, Columbus, sure, why not? So he came on out there and we played for and practiced material, actually had a couple of gigs. And then uh, the Columbus State Fair, was taking place, um, and uh, the head attraction, or the main attraction at Columbus State Fair was that year was Glenn, <clears throat> excuse me, Glenn Campbell, and uh, Keith and Carl decided they wanted to go up and see Glenn Campbell, and uh, Carl knew uh, Larry McNeely, who was playing at the time for Glenn Campbell, and he said, "Yeah, I'd like to go up and see Larry play." And, and he says, I, "I would love to see Glenn Campbell." So they went up to the state fair, came back that night, and uh, both both of them, or they all, were staying with me in in my small apartment there in in Columbus. And uh, Carl said, "You know, I got some." news that I got to run by you Jimmy Uh, and I said oh well have at it you know and he said as Keith and I were getting ready to leave we ran into Larry McNeely and he called me over he said Carl good to see you you know and 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 we got to talking and, and and Larry said by the way I've already put in my notice with Glenn Campbell and Glenn's in the market for a banjo player and wow. <laughs> I think you're the guy for the job. And uh, Carl says, uh, "Well, I'm flattered, but I'm, you know, I'm here to work with Keith and Jimmy." And he says, "Well, I'm just telling you, you know, that uh, you should uh, at least, you know, audition or whatever, and then, you know, then then make up your mind." And Carl came back that night and and said. Told me just exactly what happened, you know. He says I ran into Larry and he said, "Car." Uh, he said that Glenn is looking for a banjo player, and if I wanted, come back to come back the next day and in audition in audition for the job. I would, you know. And I said, to, "He says, but I'm here to work with you, and I'm telling you that right up front, you know. You, if if you tell me that, uh, you know th- that." You would rather me stay here and, and play? He says, "I'm I'm a man of my word. I will do it." And I said, "Carl, jobs like that, or offers like that, don't really come along in most people's lifetime." I said, "You would be a fool not to <laughs> audition for that job." I said, "You have not only my blessing, but you know, good luck to you. You know, I, I said, I hope you get the job because." That is, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. Right. He just put his arms on me. That's what I was hoping you would say. (laughs) Well, that
1: really was admirable on both of your parts, I think, for him to come right away to you and be honest and
2: and for you to give him
1: your blessing. That was uh, that's great.
2: Yeah, and the rest is history because he stayed with uh, Glenn for years and years,
1: became mm-hmm. uh,
2: part of his recordings, and and I think actually uh, somewhere down the line he he produced some of Glenn's records, but Carl right. was, a, was a master musician. He just and he and still, and is. still is and
1: still He's active still in in the music. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm looking at your um, at your website, which is uh, JimmyGoodrow.com. And on the bio, it says, you know, you worked with J.D. Crowe, The New South, Tony Rice Unit. You did uh, work with Country Store, Spectrum, Chesapeake, Aldrich Bennett and Goodrow, uh, (laughs) Robin and Linda Williams. Uh, Most recently, you and Moondy Klein have done your music together. And uh, it's been a long and uh, productive, storied career. And I, I, for one, am very glad you got that phone call back in 1969 and decided to come down to D.C.
2: Well, it Uh, was a life changer, you know, and it was one of those things where I had to make up my mind immediately. It was a yes or no. You know, I did not have time to uh, uh, think about it because Dick Freeland wanted an answer right then and there. Do you want to come down? Do you want to audition? And I said, yes. Yes. But had I even hesitated or said, "Let me think about this," my life would have changed, mm-hmm. and, and I wouldn't have that. I wouldn't have a website with my name on it and uh, <laughs> a discography or anything. I would, right. you know, probably still be in Rhode Island, uh, making, having made the transition from a draftsman to a uh, computer draw drawing person. You know. Where, right. You made the right
1: decision. Well, now, are you doing any music these days? Only at home.
2: Yeah, I uh. officially retired from the road uh, about two years ago. Things—I uh, was working like house concerts and clubs, folk clubs, and uh, things like that with Mundy, just as a duo. And that's after having left Robin and Linda, who. Um, they always maintained a vigorous schedule. Bless their heart. (laughs) You know, they, they are road warriors and still are. They they, they This went back to operating as a duo. But when I was with them, we, we put on a lot of miles and for the better part of 10 years, uh, I was barely home. Uh, And, suffered something that a lot of musicians do burnout i got burned out on the road and after i left them i said you know and and robin says well you know i i knew it was coming you know you you mentioned a few years back you hoping that it would slow down but uh you know we uh linda and i still got a lot of music to play and a lot of places to go and of course uh the rest is history. They they went on with somebody else, and, and I left and hooked up with Mundy, who I had already worked with years earlier in Chesapeake. Mm-hmm. Took some of that material, uh, you know, converted it, kind of uh, duo friendly. And I said, look, here's the thing, Mundy. I I don't want to be, a, I don't want to get back in the car and and be another road warrior. I do not want to do that. Let's, if we can concentrate right around uh, the Mid-Atlantic area, predominantly. You know, I would be just as happy doing that. And he says, "I'm with you on that." He, he said, "That's we can we can agree on that." He says, I, "I got kind of burned out with Chesapeake, and you know, he at the time had a couple of kids uh, in." Various stages of growing up, you know, and he says, "I, I don't, I don't want to leave home and, and do that either, you know." So, let's uh, concentrate on being, you know, local clubs, house concerts, and whatever we can do. And uh, uh, local up,
1: clubs, local clubs of national renown, though. Like the last time I saw YouTube together you were playing the Hamilton so. no, no. <laughs> that's a pretty prestigious
2: local club yeah well as an opening act remember yeah, we didn't have but that doesn't movie. matter <laughs> you were there and you, you were, were making there. the music
1: I was yeah. there and, and it was a good show well, thank so you. now you're home and you're with your love uh, Gloria and yes. I'm so glad you came on and, and told these stories I might get back to you you know in a, in a few months and see if you've Uncovered a few more stories Because
2: these are good ones uh, Well the one that comes to mind Would, would be a J.D. Crow story And oh. I don't have time To get into that one right now But I guarantee That uh, if you do call me back I will have that one ready to go And uh, you just you, you Strap yourself to your chair Because <laughs> it, it is ridiculous <laughs> It is ridiculously funny Even when I think of it I laugh out loud
0: That was the legendary Jimmy Gaudreau reminiscing with Katie Daly about some of his incredible career. Here's hoping we hear his J.D. Crowe story very, very soon indeed. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and katiedaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.